0: Hi there, I'm Marcy Hamilton, and I am the founder and CEO of Child USA, which is a national nonprofit think tank to end child abuse and neglect. We put together the best social science with the best legal analysis to get the best policies to help children. We are interested in ending child sex abuse, child abuse, uh, including both physical and emotional abuse. Uh, and also, child neglect, failure to feed, failure to educate, failure to provide medical treatment. This is what Child USA focuses on, and this is our podcast A Voice for the Kids. It's time for children to be paid attention to. And what we at Child USA are doing is putting children at the policy decision table. Uh, And so I hope you enjoy these podcasts. Um, There was some of the leading experts and interesting thinkers in the country on the civil rights movement for children. Thanks. We are delighted today to have uh, Dr. Paul Offit uh, of Children's Hospital Philadelphia and the University of Pennsylvania Perelman Medical School join us. He's a pediatrician specializing in infectious diseases and an expert. On vaccines, immunology, and virology. And let me tell you, that's an understatement. He's one of the top people in the world on these issues. Uh, he's the co inventor of a rotavirus vaccine, uh, which has saved hundreds of lives every day worldwide, uh, and holds the Maurice R. Hilleman Professor of Vaccinology and is a professor of pediatrics. Uh, you know, this is a man who I got to meet. Um, About 10 years ago, uh, through Rita Swan. And Rita Swan is the leading person in the country who's fought to get children vaccinated uh, and to get rid of religious exemptions. Child USA started as um, uh, the project that I was taking the statute of limitations issues and child sex abuse issues into a nonprofit. And she was getting ready to retire. And so, Child USA stands for. Children's Healthcare is a Legal Duty, and that's directly from Rita, uh, and Paul Offit wrote the book on Rita called Bad Faith, uh, and I highly recommend it to everybody. So please join me today in welcoming uh, this uh, really fantastic uh, fantastic advocate uh, and uh, medical leader, Paul Offit. We're, we're so delighted to have you, Paul, today, and um, this, of course, has become a hot topic amid COVID-19 pandemic, which is vaccines. Of course, you've been working your whole career on that. Um, you know, I have to say, you're the first person I've met who actually got their, it, what would you call Maurice Hilleman, your hero, or you, you have the Maurice Hilleman chair, and I, I'm very uh, impressed by that.
1: Well, he's certainly a hero, um, and and a mentor, and in some ways a friend. I mean, he was, yeah. you know, I, I knew him um, when we first approached Merck with you know, the strains that we thought could be a rotavirus vaccine. Was when I first met him, so that was around 1990, and and so then I knew him for the basically the last uh, 15 years of his life or so. But he was he was unique. Uh, you, you never meet anybody like that guy. I've <laughs> never met anybody on the one hand so profound i mean he really got it he was just right a lot and, yeah. and profane so, so it's hard to make something <laughs> that profound and that <laughs> profane and that was always the challenge in writing a book because he was kind enough in the last six months of his life to let me interview him mm-hmm. um, and and you know and so i you know to the extent he had let me do that i i, I recorded him but because i wanted to be accurate about the quotes which probably you know you're always struggling with because he cursed all the time you know, doing, <laughs> Do you actually put that word in there? Do you do sort of the, you know, the Rosemary Wood expletive deleted, you know, right. do you do the ellipsis? I mean, what do you do? And so I ended up just putting it in there. So I ended up, it's probably the only book that has like the phrase polymerase chain reaction and the F word in the same sentence.
0: <laughs> well, I loved, I, I really, uh, so the the book uh, that uh, Paul wrote about Morris Hillman is Vaccinated. Um, one Man's Quest to Defeat the World's Deadliest Diseases. And w- what's so amazing about this book is, first of all, the subject that what he did for us and none of us had any idea. Um, but, um, but also, I-, I really feel like we should mandate that every American read this book to really <laughs> understand that um, vaccines have saved millions of lives. Uh, I I just, uh, how is it that his name is not one that we're chatting about, you know, on uh, all the cable news channels now?
1: I think it's because we don't like our heroes to come from from industry. We want them to come from academia. And I think that he always suffered that. In the last last year of his life, when I was sitting next to Svengaard, who was at the Karolinska Institute, that's the institute that decides who does and doesn't get the Nobel Prize, and I said, how about this guy? I mean, he's, you know, and and, uh, public health achievements aside, his work on the on, characterizing it, on on making uh, predictions about what it could do, on really first showing it could treat chronic diseases or cancer. Um, His six papers in Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences were groundbreaking papers. I mean, and so you don't, you don't get Nobel Prizes for public health achievements, but you do get them for technological achievements. And that was a technological achievement. And why not him? And the answer was basically because he works for industry. Although, interestingly, on the, on the physical uh, side, you know, like uh, physical uh, sciences, you know, Bell Labs wins Nobel Prizes all the time. So, so the, right. there's not a problem with, on that side of it. But I guess on the biological sciences, there's a problem.
0: The, so, so the only one academics. OK, all right. But, but he really is the man who can give us the, the uh, diseases that he essentially eradicated from the United States, uh, at least until recently.
1: Right. So he, he was primary, either the primary research or development on nine of the 14 vaccines that we currently give to infants and young children. The measles vaccine, the mumps vaccine, the original rubella vaccine, the hepatitis A vaccine, the hepatitis B vaccine, the influenza type B vaccine. Um, the pneumococcal vaccine, I mean, all of that was, was you know, primarily his work, either on the, the the research or the development side. And, you know, who can claim that? I mean, I was fortunate enough yeah. to be part of a team at Children's Hospital Philadelphia that created one vaccine. I mean, that was a 26 year right. effort, and, and it was massive from my mind. I mean, the notion of making nine vaccines is sort of, like, <laughs> otherworldly.
0: Well, I mean, your contributions have been huge, which is why we're talking to you. But, you know, one of the things you've done is make um, – science understandable for the public uh, in ways that they need to understand. Uh, And of course, I'm not only a fan of your book, Vaccinated, but also Bad Faith, uh, which is really the story of the anti-vaccine movement. And of course, our hero, Rita Swan, uh, who spent her whole career just trying to get rid of religious exemptions to vaccination. how do you choose which next book to write? I, I, you, you've really written a series of uh, fascinating, but really public health policy books.
1: You know, I, th- I think it's, uh, the heart of most of those books really is child advocacy. I mean, I guess I see myself, um, as standing up for children. I, I'm sure it's yeah. why I went into pediatrics. I see them as as often sort of vulnerable and, and and where people don't stand up for them. And bad faith's a perfect example. I mean, you know, that we sort of stand back legally, and you know this better than anybody in the country, is we stand back legally and let, you know, people sort of let their children die in the name of their faith and and, and allow that to happen. It's yeah. just 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 unimaginable to me.
0: It is, yeah. Well, well and, and that's of course why Child USA, you're, you're one of our saints, you know, we have our early saints and, and you're one of them.
2: This year, Child USA launched its first-ever membership portal. The portal is a collection of books, videos, articles, and online resources, all intended to help survivors heal, learn, and build resiliency in their lives. It is the only library made for survivors and curated by CSA experts. Googling blindly for information on child sex abuse can be overwhelming and, at the end of the day, unhelpful so child usa has done the research to locate the resources that will be the most helpful to you whether you are a survivor a family member or someone who works with children like a coach or a teacher this is a place where you can browse learn and relax in peace for just 25 dollars a year you can become a member now along with our curated resource lists portal members have access to exclusive content including expert q a's featured art by survivors and a video version of the podcast you're listening to right now. We hope you join us. Visit childusa.org slash members to sign up now. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the episode.
0: You know, so I was surprised, frankly, when Dr. Anthony Fauci recently was doing an interview and he basically said, you know, I don't think that we're going to need a vaccine mandate for COVID-19. Um, And I've been busy here writing about how to explain, how to get rid of all the religious religious exemptions, which are going to make it harder to get herd immunity. So my question for you is, do you think that we're going to need, or are you going to be in favor of a vaccine mandate or are we in an era when that's not possible?
1: I don't think it's in the end gonna be practical in the sense that, well, so there have been a couple of polls done. One was done by the Boston Globe, which said that one third of Americans would not be given, would not take a COVID-19 right. vaccine if offered. Another one, more recently by CNN, showed that that number was closer to 50%, which is a little <laughs> worse. But I don't think. I mean, if you ask me the question right now, would I get a COVID-19 vaccine? My answer would be not till I see the data. I mean, let me right. let me see what those data look like, especially for someone in my age group. I just want to make sure that there are sub- substantial numbers of people tested in my age group, so that I can say with confidence it's safe and it's effective. So they're asking. Whether you would get a theoretical vaccine, and I think people should be skeptical about anything you put into your body um, so so once the better question is you know would you get a vaccine if it had been tested in twenty thousand people shown to be safe that if it gave you a three out of four chance of being protected against moderate to severe disease um, and could protect you for at least six months or a year, would you get that vaccine? I think most people would say yes to that, I think, but uh, who knows he's safe. Um <laughs> But I, I don't think I see the the the, um, the groups that are that are responsible for deciding who gets the first flight of vaccines that comes out off the assembly line is going to be the CDC in collaboration with the National Academy of Medicine, just their frontline group, the first group to get these, you know, essential workers, healthcare workers, uh, mm-hmm. and et cetera um that's 120 million people for a two dose vaccine that's 240 million doses i'd be amazed if we actually had 240 million doses of one or more vaccines by the time these vaccines are ready to roll um so i think it's just going to be a matter of getting enough vaccine initially without worrying about mandating
0: that's interesting so uh so i mean it'll be a tiered healthcare workers obviously on the front lines um emts all all of the people who have to who are dealing with uh, infected individuals but um so how will they decide which hospitals get it first? Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: It's, so, so the question is, how does it get distributed? And right. of, it's, it's not just health workers, it's sort of anybody who can be considered an essential worker. So mass transit, you know, meatpacking plants, you could argue teachers right. are essential workers. In fact, Donald Trump just made that argument. Um, anybody, adults over 65 years of age, people who work or, or live in long-term care facilities, um, people with certain health problems, et cetera. So, so it's a you know it's a vast swath of people. How do you how do you identify? How do you get the vaccine out first? Out, out from from Warp Speed, which is basically located in D.C. How do you get it out from there and then into the hands of the public? And and it's going to be through the Department of Defense as the original distributor. And then my understanding, and it's going to be free of charge. The vaccines are mm-hmm. free. Um, and then it's going to go to, to at least doctor's offices and multi sort of large chain pharmacies. And then, then the question is, what are the other points of care where this is going to be distributed? Because you're talking about distributing it to 120 million people. <laughs> I, I just think this is going to be a tour de force. And this is the same administration that can't distribute face masks. So it's going yeah. to have to be stored at minus 80 degrees centigrade. So I think that's uh, going Brutal. to be an enormous challenge.
0: It, and and what's what's your betting on the uh, on the timing of a tested and effective vaccine coming out?
1: I think it's possible that we could have a tested effective and safe vaccine by the first quarter of next year. Okay. I think that's uh, assuming everything worked well, I think that's mm-hmm. possible
0: but but for those of us who are not on the front lines, you know we're basically living covid in a bubble uh, called our home uh the um uh, you know, we're going to be farther down the line. So we really are talking about another year of wearing masks.
1: I think it's probably right. Probably by the end, if you, at the earliest would be the end of the year. And then the question is, what percentage of the population really needs to be vaccinated before you can say you've stopped spread? And right. it, it depends on two things. One is the contagiousness of the virus. Two, the effectiveness of the vaccine. If you assume a vaccine is 75% effective, which would be great. I think everybody mm-hmm. would be happy with that. Um, then you probably need to vaccinate about two-thirds of the American population.
0: Wow. And if, if kids are spreaders or super spreaders, you need to vaccinate them too right?
1: And they're not going to be in the, on, on the first round. In fact, no. all the phase three studies that are now going, these large prospective placebo-controlled studies, none of them that are US-based involve anyone less than 18 years of age. So th- these vaccines are going to roll out before kids are ever tested. And I think it's only going to be after they're, they're, they're approved or, or licensed that you're going to see studies done in children. And those studies are going to have to be done in children. You, you can't right. give it to children and say, assume that the studies you've done so far are relevant to children. You don't know that. So- Wow. Next,
0: wow. So 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 people who are saying I don't vaccinate my children generally are definitely going to be saying I'm not going to vaccinate them until all these you know, proper tests are done. That's 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 a lot of time with your uh, child at home uh, or wearing a mask or, or, or however else we're going to uh, to handle this. I, so what do you think about kids going back to school this fall? is it can it be done safely I I guess it depends
1: on the area one I mean if you're in an area that's still on fire with this virus I think it's going to be really hard it just depends on what the the school's willing to do I mean you you have to you have to have these kids wear masks I mean anybody over two can in theory wear a mask you have to separate them if you can do that in the schools I think you when they come into school you have to bring them in in shifts I think you have to worry about how you're transporting them to school you know in in, in sort of a crowded bus you really can't be that. and so I think it's going to be really hard. I mean, look what's happening at on college campuses right now. Like <laughs> North Carolina Chapel Hill opens up, 13% of the, their students are infected, and so they close again. And I just I think what we're asking those students to do, quite frankly, is impossible. And we should just stop asking. You're yeah. asking them to not be a college student. I mean, to not right. gather together in parties on or off campus, to not drink. I mean, to not socialize. It's, 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 it, it, and this is among a group of people who, who consider themselves invulnerable. So, <laughs> forget it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, Yale, of course, took the approach of sending out a letter saying basically, okay, people are going to die, so you better behave yourselves. But it is true. You do go to college. I mean, what's the difference between going, staying home and doing the remote classes, like I will be teaching this fall, or uh, going to college? Well, the difference is social. And it's fabulous, but um, maybe not good during a pandemic.
1: Right. You, you <laughs> can't ask them to go to school and not in any sense um, enjoy the things that means going to school and college. Right. I mean, there, there is no difference, really, in terms of what, what we're asking them to do socially between whether they stay home and get sort of, you know, off-site learning or they go to school. We're asking them basically to do the same thing. So forget it. Yeah.
0: Uh. So, so do we have statistics on parents getting vaccines, all the other vaccines? Forget COVID-19 for a minute, but getting the MMR and everything else kids should be getting. Uh, I, I've read somewhere that we're behind the eight ball on that. Are, are kids not getting vaccinated?
1: Right, so the CDC has published data on that. Um, not surprisingly, over this past year, uh, because people are scared of this pandemic, they're scared of going to areas where there's gonna, gonna be you know, groups of people in a small space. And so people were reluctant to go to doctor's offices because they thought this is gonna be where doctors are taking care of COVID-19 and they don't wanna sit in a waiting room or any sort of situation with other people who might be sick. So they didn't go. So as a result, the incidence of measles-containing vaccine is way down. The incidence of pertussis vaccine is way down. And, and so we will head into this winter now with, um, with a more vulnerable childhood population. That said, there is a countervailing force, which is social distancing and masks. I mean, if we continue to do that through the winter, that actually probably will, it will work against measles spread or against whooping cough spread and frankly against flu spread. I'm really curious to see the flu numbers this year, because you could argue, I mean, last year influenza caused 780,000 hospitalizations and 60,000 deaths. That was, that was a pretty bad flu year, but not a crazy bad flu year. Um, if we wore masks in social distance last year, the same way we're doing this now, and we didn't really start doing this until sort of March, April, um, I think we would have dramatically reduced flu incidence. And so we'll see. We'll see what happens coming into this next year.
0: And and the common cold?
1: In the common cold, too. I mean, it's the same thing. So, so We,
0: we yeah. may be wearing masks for the rest of our lives.
1: Well, you know, in, in uh, Japan, for example, if you're ever in Japan in the winter months, they wear masks. I love them. thought that was silly, but maybe they're not, they, got, they get it.
0: Well, if you're walking around on Penn's campus last year before any of this happened, I mean, you knew the the kids that were from China and from Japan because they were wearing masks. And uh, and and also they would have um parasols to protect them from the sun. They're just I mean, really smart things to be doing that we weren't doing and now apparently we're catching up. I mean, do we do we have statistics on mask wearing yet? Is that uh, I mean, it, it seems to me people are doing a pretty good job, but there are plenty of places I'm not seeing masks.
1: There, there's plenty of places where they're not doing it. If you look, for example, when the Georgia high schools go back and you see everybody crowded in the halls, <laughs> and none of them, none of them were wearing masks. I mean, first of all, yeah. it should be the teacher that goes from classroom to classroom, not the students that go from classroom to right. classroom. Right. easier to do it that way. You'll have a less crowded hall. <laughs> But that's just a simple thing. And then when one of the uh, school superintendents in Georgia said, look, we just can't mandate this. I mean, you, you, presumably you have dress codes. I mean, there are things right. that are mandated. People aren't walking around in bathing suits. I mean, I, I don't <laughs> think they would be able to do that. So just have people wear a mask. I just don't think it's that hard to do this. I don't either. We see no. this as a freedom issue, which really upsets me. When people say, look, this is my freedom, this is my liberty, it's not your liberty to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection. Any more than this is your liberty no. to run a stop sign. We do have certain societal, no. you know, uh, bars.
0: Well, you know, we, we uh, under with the HIV and AIDS. What happened is we developed a series of legal theories in which, if you transmitted it to someone, you could be sued, and in fact, criminal liability was attached to it. Uh, and it's really the same principle here that you don't have a constitutional right to infect other people. Uh, and in fact, you know, if the Lockean deal that we have in the United States is that we're supposed to uh, not harm each other, and so the Constitution is no protection, but the Constitution has become the the word right and the word discrimination those two words have become so ridiculously overused they don 't mean anything anymore uh, and th- this whole concept that you have a right not to wear a mask no you don 't that 's just silly i mean and and uh, you know you really don 't have a right not to take a vaccine if it 's in the interest of saving lives um but as you say if the rollout is over the course of a year or two um i guess people will catch up
2: on october 22nd join child usa for our fourth annual award ceremony this year the event will be 100% virtual but that doesn't mean that it won't be a night to remember with your ticket purchase a fun festively wrapped party box will be delivered to your address to enhance your live viewing experience. The party box includes an artisanal charcuterie spread, handcrafted chocolates, an exclusive Child USA stemless wine glass, and much more. Join us for this inspiring and uplifting event from wherever you are in the world, as we honor a handful of heroes who have made strides in the arena of child protection. Visit childusa.org slash annual event 2020 to get your tickets now. That's childusa.org slash annual event 2020. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the episode.
1: The, The good news is there are three things working against the virus. Natural infection, which does provide immunity that appears to be protective. Um, two is the vaccine, and three is hygienic measures. You know, we are not helpless here. You do have hygienic measures that you can use. So that does matter. This is, it is a respiratory virus. I mean, if you wear a mask, you're going to be less likely to transmit it and get it.
0: Uh, it's not that hard. And, and you really can wash your hands like your mom taught you to. You it, it really you can be done.
1: I think we should frankly, to be perfectly honest, with all the talk about testing, I don't I don't think we're gonna test our way out of this this pandemic. I think just assume everybody you come in contact with is either asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. Just make that assumption, wear a mask, stay away from them, and, and then forget all about,
0: about all the testing. I think that's exactly the way to think about. It. I, mean, I mean, that's my assumption that everyone is because everybody is. In fact, including me, if I don't even have symptoms. Who knows?
1: Who knows? That's the problem. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's uh but so, well, let's talk about your, um, your latest book, which is Overkill, which is a great name, uh, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far. So, and I, because I want our listeners to understand that you are a straight arrow. You're the guy saying, look, sometimes medicine screws up and sometimes it saves our lives. Um, and vaccines are a big part of saving our lives. But give us an example from your book, Overkill, which I really enjoyed, uh, of when is it that medicine really isn't helping?
1: Right. So, so the book represents about 15 different situations in modern medicine where there's clear scientific evidence, abundant scientific evidence that we shouldn't be doing something, but we do it anyway, uh, largely <laughs> for a variety of reasons, inertia, money, whatever it is. But I think the one that probably, the story that probably people will find the most surprising is you don't need to finish the antibiotic course. I mean, this is so <laughs> drilled into everybody's head, but, but you know we don't do that for other things. I mean, when you have um, pain you 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 get pain medicine so the pain's gone if you have asthma and you you have difficulty breathing you take a bronchodilator till the asthma till the, the breathing difficulty is gone why do we determine a predeter? why do we predetermine a length of illness for for a bacterial infection so for example if you have a kidney infection and you have pain in your back and you have bacteria in your urine and you have white blood cells in your urine and you have fever and then you you know you you take an antibiotic and say two or 3 days later Your pain's gone, your fever's gone, there's not bacteria in your urine anymore, there's no white blood cells in your urine. Why do we continue to treat? I mean, the thing people have, have argued is, well, if you don't treat for the entire 10 or 14 days, because we always make these decisions based on the metric system and the lunar month. I mean, why <laughs> if, if the numbers 10 and 14 are still beyond me. But um, you know, that, that you want that you'll develop resistant bacteria. The opposite is true, as has been shown again and again. Not surprisingly, the longer you treat with antibiotics, the more likely you are to develop resistance, which now is a matter that's clearly understood in the medical literature. And so, what people are doing is they're showing that you didn't need to treat for 14 days. 10 days or seven days or five days. I mean, they're doing studies to show you can treat for shorter and shorter amounts of time. And advisory committees are now following up on those studies showing you can treat a bladder infection for three days or a kidney infection for three to five days. Or, or appendicitis, I mean, non-ruptured appendicitis for three or five days. I mean, this is surprising to people. Pneumonia, that causes you to go into the ICU. Once a person doesn't have fever for two days, you can stop the antibiotics. Then that's slowly starting to see, seep into into practice, but it's taken... long time it's just been such a mantra of of finish your antibiotic course
0: right what no and once i read that and i was talking to my mother because she had a a chest infection i was like well how many days you've been taking she says well i'm on it for 14 days no matter what and it was making her feel lousy (laughs) i was like "Hmm, i have a doctor who actually might disagree with that (laughs) so i mean the the key is how how do we get the public to understand the good science, the best science for everybody's best health? I mean, that's the, I think that's our biggest challenge right now.
1: Well, I agree. I mean, so, so the purpose of this book is not for you to be your own doctor. The purpose of this book is to try and sort of compel you with the science, to so try and explain those studies. I mean, it's not a matter of believing me. It's just a matter of believing good, believing good data that, that are published in good uh, publications. So that you can be sort of a better advocate for your own health. So you can be asked better questions of your, your doctor. So you can wonder why it is that your, your child's ear infection is being treated for 10 days when they're better after three. And that, in fact, advisory committees now recommend for children over two years of age to only treat for a few days, which parents get. I really do think most parents get this. They treat the child's better. So they take the antibiotic and they store it away for next right. time, which probably isn't a great idea. But they do get stopping. A lot of parents do stop early for ear infections. And they're right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, and then there are also parents and they have 14,000 other things to do. And if the kid's not complaining, it really is easier not to treat as someone who did have two kids, um, now adults. So, um, you know, we are honoring you at our annual event this year, our ceremony, which will now be virtual red carpet and all. Um, with the Public Educator Award. And really, I don't think uh, anybody deserves it more than you do. It's just, it's, uh, you, you've just done such amazing work on um, helping us all to be better uh, with our children, but also with understanding the science. What is, uh, it, it, could you tell us a little bit about the rotavirus vaccine and, and how many years did that take?
1: 26.
0: 26 so give us a little bit of the roadmap on that I, I, that's a long time
1: yeah it's it's um it's a long time although it's not all that unusual i mean the, the average length of time it takes to make a vaccine is about 15 to 20 years which is why this vaccine which is probably going to be made in no longer than a year and a half a year and a quarter it's just uh Amazing, and there's reasons, There's there's good reasons for why it's so fast. But um, no, the, the, the rotavirus effort is, is as always. I mean, you, you when you enter the field as I did in 1980, you know, you you you, you there's a, a wealth of, of literature, medical literature that's been published that that, that informs you about how to move forward. And then you, so you, that's the old line, right? You would see farther because you stand on the shoulder of giant, giants. That's right. Isaac Newton. And um, and so you have that. And then you have these, just these, I love the scientific collaboration. I mean, for the 26 years that I did this, I really loved the international scientific community where people couldn't give, help other people understand their data, you know, more quickly enough. It's just, we all loved sharing data and try, because we're all involved in the same process, which is trying to understand what about this virus makes you sick? And what about this, this virus induces an immune response which protects you from getting sick again? Knowing mm-hmm. that this was the virus that's killing Two thousand children a day in the world, um, mm-hmm. arguably, arguably the biggest killer of infants and young children in the world. It's actually why Bill and Melinda Gates got into vaccines because they'd never heard of rotaviruses. Bill Gates had never heard of rotavirus, and here it was killing two thousand children a day. So that was actually his initial thing was rotavirus. Wow. He turned as a real pull mechanism for that vaccine. Um, and so it just it was just fun. I, you know, you're trying to to solve this thousand piece puzzle, and you just get a little piece every day. And it is an international effort. And it ended in a vaccine, I mean, it ends up that, you know, we, me, Stan Plack and Fred Clark, were the sort of co-inventors of this uh, this vaccine, the Roto- the attack vaccine, but you know, but it's really all of us that did it. It was the hundreds of us throughout the world that did it. Mm-hmm. And it's, we all weren't uh, given the same level of acclaim.
0: It, it, what a process. I mean, uh, and, and that that is what, science is collaborative. Sometimes it's hard to explain that to the public uh, and it's not just competitive. It's not that everybody needs to have their name at the top. It's actually you're looking for solutions. That's, uh, that's, that's uh, amazing in this day and age. We don't think in those terms.
1: No, you, you, the, the countries will sort of insert a certain level of nationalism. I mean, you know, China now has its vaccine, its so-called replication defective uh, Adenovirus type five vaccine, which they're now giving to their military. You know, Russia has its vaccine. The UK through AstraZeneca now has its vaccine. We have our NIH vaccine, which is Moderna's vaccine. Um, So there's a level of nationalism that that is unfortunate. That sort of gets that's overlaid on this because it's irrelevant. It really is. I mean, the the best vaccine should be the the last vaccine, and and wherever it comes from.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we're really looking forward to honoring you on October twenty second, but. Um, please keep showing up on CNN, because uh, the minute I hear your voice, I turn it up, and I'm like, now there's a voice I can trust. That's that, <laughs> that's a good thing. I appreciate that. So what, what's, are you working on another book? You're prolific.
1: I am. I'm working on a book uh, called The Learning Curve, um, just about um, uh, sort sort of how you can make the best medical decisions in an age of uncertainty. I mean, learning basically from the tragic lessons of the past, because I'm telling you right now, there has never been a medical advance that has not come with a human cost, And I worry that that may also be true here. I mean, when when you see, for example, some of these companies will do like, they'll, they'll publish something in the New England Journal of Medicine or Lancet where they've tested 10 people or 15 right. people. And then they talk about how they're in the midst of making tens of millions of doses. I mean, <laughs> hold on, because uh, believe me, nature gives itself up slowly and grudgingly and invariably with a human cause. There's a lot to learn here. This has been a difficult to characterize. Elusive virus that's had many surprises. A lot of these early vaccine strategies, Moderna's, Pfizer's, uh, J&J's, AstraZeneca's, the Chinese group, the Russian group, those are all strategies that have never been used for a commercial product before. So you have a difficult virus that you're countering with with, a va- with vaccine strategies that have never been used to make vaccines for. Let's assume we're going to learn some things over the next two years we wish we knew now. So there's a level of humility that's sort of lacking, I think, in this. And I think that does make people uncomfortable, understandably so.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, well, uh, we'll see in October where we are, and then we'll see a year from now where we are. Sounds <laughs> good. Paul, thank you so much uh, for chatting with us today, uh, and uh, I, I just always love talking to you. So thank you. for all you do. Stay safe. Okay. Take right. care. Bye-bye. At our annual event, we will also be honoring uh, Jim Regatas, who is the journalist extraordinaire who broke the R. Kelly story actually a music journalist uh, and saw what was happening and then turned it into something of a mission which was a mission for the victims. We will be honoring him with the voice of the Voiceless Award and uh, I know you'll find the podcast with him fascinating. He's just a fascinating individual.